ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 people, how's it going? Hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. Really starting to get a lot colder here in the UK. I don't know about where you are in the world, but in the UK we really do go through all the different seasons. And it can really, it's a really sort of interesting feeling when you can start to feel the cold coming closer. You can really start to feel autumn getting closer, sort of the leaves on the trees are starting to fall off. It's still green, but the air is starting to feel a lot fresher. It's starting to get darker again. And it's really interesting because it sort of feels like that the summer I would see more focuses on on the energy being more outward, sort of people, social environment, activities and the physical. And then obviously as the darkness starts to arrive, it more the, the focus sort of more shifts to, to our inner world, I would say. And it sort of leaves space to nurture our soul. That's what I feel anyway. And it's really interesting because when it comes to the cycles of nature, it's something that I've really had to try and sort of come to terms with and sort of really try to tune into and trying to find gratitude for because I'm somebody who in the past is really who really loves the, the sort of the heat, loves the sun. And it's it's a constant sort of battle to try and for me anyway, to try and be grateful for the changing of the seasons. But what I have tuned into um, this year and over the last few years, I've really been trying to tune into the understanding of the changes of the seasons because to me it really gives the emphasis emphasis that nothing lasts forever and to try and find some beauty in that understanding really makes you sort of appreciate the seasons a lot more. So anyway, this week on the podcast, enough of my talking about the seasons, <laughs> but anyway, this week on the podcast is a conversation I did from my time at the Breaking Convention. It's with a guy called Eric Madden. And this was a really interesting conversation because over the time at this conference, there was a lot of podcasts that weren't sort of fixed and I didn't really have a fixed time. There was a few people who I wanted to talk to and there was a few uncertainties. And Eric was one of them guys. I wasn't really too sure if I was actually going to do a podcast with him. He was somebody who, when I started doing a bit of research on him, he was quite unknown. He hadn't really done any of the podcasts before. He'd done maybe one or two interviews, but they were very short. And there wasn't really much information about him. There was just one little bit of um, information that I found where it said that that he'd spent a few years traveling around the world in the quest to try and find the identity of God and try and have this sort of divine revelation. So I thought he's definitely somebody who's a really interesting guy. So after doing this podcast with him as you'll see it's a really interesting one it was really more of just sort of as as the conversation unfolded questions arose in my mind and it was just sort of more of an organic podcast it was really cool and he was as you will see somebody who has really had a very rich life but anyway eric has spent 10 years traveling around the world on the quest for the origins and the identity of god 
obviously it has multiple means to it it was more in it's more in terms of sort of a quest of god within himself not as a sort of a as he says in this podcast not sort of a religious god but he spent a lot 10 years traveling around the world sort of absorbing absorbing influences from the mayans from the polynesians the indigenous cultures of australia and he also now lives in Snowdonia, where he has co-created a, um, a self-sustainable off-grid place that is sort of like an eco-retreat center. So he is a very interesting guy. But after spending 10 years of traveling around, he really went on this journey to see if he could sort of be open to find divine revelation in his own sort of terms and what it means to him. So as you will see, this podcast is a really interesting one. He, he is such a great storyteller. He's lived a, such a rich life. And really went on this quest for this amazing quest to find to find divine revelation in his own life. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. I know you will. And just before we dive in with this one, I just wanted to bring a little bit of attention to the Patreon page. You're probably getting sick of me mentioning this now, but it really is the best way to help me to keep doing what I'm doing. As you know, I'm traveling around doing different conversations, and it really provides and gives me a great platform to help me to keep doing what I'm doing. I've mentioned this before, but we're living in a time where I do feel that we can put our attention into conscious things that we want to see more of. As you know, I don't run ads on this podcast, and all I'm asking of you is if you can find it in your heart and support the podcast in any means possible, it really will go such a long way. Even if it's just $2 a month, the price of a cup of coffee each month, it really, honestly, I promise you, it goes such a long way. So all I'm saying is if you can find it in your heart, check out the Patreon page. Also have a one-off donation option if you don't want to sign up to any monthly payments. A few people have been doing that. So thank you so much to the current patrons. Without your help, this podcast really wouldn't be possible. So please, if you are out there and you want to support the podcast, I promise you the time is now to help me to take this to the next level. So anyway, I love you all and I know for a fact you're going to love this conversation. Peace out. So anyway, I, I would really love to sort of um, talk about the aspect of where you travelled around the world and um, in the search. I think it was, was it in the search of how would how would you put it across? You travel in the world in the search of sort of the origins of God. That's what that's what it's. Uh, uh, I know God's a sort of a sticky word, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if I if I tell you a little bit about what was on my mind when I set out on this journey. Um, First of all, I, I'd studied psychology and sociology at University in Sheffield, and my final thesis was called Educational Change and Identity. So I was looking at what changes were taking place in the educational system at the time and what impact they might have on the identity of the pupils that went through them. Uh, this was a time of great radical innovation where boundaries were being dissolved and connections between communities and schools were, were increasing and so on. Um, but at the end of it, I realized I had not really no idea of what I meant by identity. So that was one thing I was looking for was, you know, well, what, is, what, is, what does it mean? In a sense, it was the classic quest for identity. And then also, just before I left university, I encountered some born-again Christians 
they had a festival of light in Sheffield. And I couldn't really have a conversation with them because they were actually quite narrow-minded, in my view. But what I observed was that there were quite a few people involved who had been had been drug addicts or criminals and you know they had those kind of dissolute lives and somehow they'd had a um a conversion experience and their lives had changed and they were sort of now we might call upright citizens and so it seemed to me that that experience of if you like divine revelation really had an incredible power to change people and in my work and study in social psychology was very much about how people change. So I was thinking, actually, there might be something in this. So when I set out on the journey, I felt I wanted to see if I could be open to experiencing divine revelation for myself. I didn't. It wouldn't think of it in terms of Christian uh, language, but um, I wanted to find out what that might be for me. So that was the second uh, sort of thing, uh, identity divine revelation and then the third thing I suppose was that my mother died when I was six years old um, my father remarried my stepmother was from Wales and that's what led to the Welsh connection for me but um, I, 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 we'd never really been able to talk about her much after she died so so she was this mystery and I wanted to know more about her because obviously you know she was part of my being really you know she was the one who gave me birth and she was my mother and so I wanted to find out about my mother and actually that kind of extended beyond simply my mother but also to you know well where I came from you know origins so those were the three kind of drivers if you like um, identity mother and God mm -hmm. um, were what I was looking for not that it was set out clearly like that in my mind it was just you know vague hunches that that's where I was going that's what I was looking for that was my quest so would you see this was sort of more of an inner quest than actually sort of a more of an inner sort of dissection of who you trying to find out who you truly are well it was an inner quest but it involved going around the world I mean I set out at the age of 22 thinking it would take me two years to, to travel around the world but in fact it took me 10 initially I went to uh, Oregon and then California in America in fact I ended up spending about four years altogether in, 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 in North America and I, 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 I lived for a while in, in California um, mostly in Berkeley and um, because it felt to me that that was that was a kind of in a way that was where they were experimenting with new um, ideas and practices and and it, it, it felt like that was where the for example the humanistic psychology movement was at its strongest it felt like a cut cultural cutting edge so I wanted to immerse myself in it and find out as much as I could so I lived in um, the Bay Area for a few, you know two or three years I also went down to Mexico and Guatemala a couple of times and actually in a way the biggest effect of all that time was was my encounter with the Mayans in in uh, in Guatemala and southern Mexico I, I was just very moved by by them and you know they're because they were still living a, a kind of pre-industrial or tribal life a lot of they, they had a lot of their traditions still intact 
and uh, I was very touched by by my experience with them. Um, you know, for example, you'd be walking along these mountain paths, and there two old women would pass each other, and um, they wouldn't speak to each other. They would sing. They would sing their greetings to each other as they went by. Um, of course, they wore these extraordinary clothes that they'd woven and embroidered themselves with beautiful colours and very vibrant and and very um, you know just just a sort of joyous kind of um, way of being in the world, despite all the challenges that they faced. So, so the that was my uh, you know one of the big uh, experiences for me was being. Uh, in the Mayan communities. Why, why do you, I, love, I like that story, I wanted to dive a little bit further into the, the Mayan aspect of things. The, you know that story you just described there, did you, did you ever sort of come to any conclusions why them, why that form of communication happened, why they actually sunk each other? Oh, well, not particular conclusions, I don't think, but, you know, I, I, um, I don't know. They were they were just there was just a very strong sense of community. There was a strong sense of connection to the land. There was a strong sense of connection to ancestors. I mean, one place I went to, um, I stayed in for a month was was a, a village called Todos Santos, All Saints, and um, I actually lived in this tiny little hut, a casita, on the crest of a of a hill, about an hour's walk out of Todos Santos. And uh, one day, I decided that the following day I was going to go to Wewetenango, the nearest town, to get some provisions. And I had to get a bus at six o'clock in the morning. I had no way of waking myself, no alarm clock or anything like that. So I thought, well, if I wake up, I'll go. And if I don't, I won't. Anyway, so that night I had a dream. And in the dream, I was on my way down the hill. I'd started going down the hill. And then suddenly, halfway down the hill, I realized that I'd left my bag behind. So, still in my dream, I turned around and went up the hill and came into the door of my little casita, at which point I woke up. And I thought, oh, well, I, 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 I can go. I've woken in time. you know. And it was almost as if my spirit had started down the hill and then remembered my body and come back for my body. And so I, I went down the hill, and it was a full moon that night, and... It was quite a steep path, and I was slipping and sliding a bit. And eventually, I was just approaching Todos Santos when I saw on this hill um, a fire. And suddenly, I was in this circle of firelight before realizing what I was doing. And it turned out there was a there was a a group of people there. There was a fire in front of these three crosses on the hill. The full moon was setting in the distance. And these people who were standing there were doing a ceremony. And as I arrived, I, there was an old man, an old woman, and, I, and the old man had a turkey under his arm. I just heard the sort of gobbling of the turkey, and then suddenly he, the man must have slit its, its throat, and the woman caught the blood in a bowl. And at that point, one of the men saw me standing there, and he just kind of nodded at me and half smiled and sort of accepted my presence somehow that I just this foreigner had bumbled into this scene you know and uh, and then I carried on my way and it, it, it turned out that was that hill was called Kumanchum and it was where the shamans of old used to do their rituals or that's what I'd been told but actually they were still doing them 
And, you know, so there was this, this ritual of full moon, fire, crosses, blood, sacrifice. And somehow I'd been led to it in my dr by my dream. So that, that helped to make me believe in dreams and, um, and also, you know, the power of ritual and so on. Um, so that's just one uh, a small story of my experience down there. And I would say that I, I was quite influenced by the Mayans, as well as my time in California, of course. I did a lot of work there with um, in movement and dance and mime and massage. And, and you know, I, I, I was doing um, uh, kind of movement awareness, something called Feldenkrais, and uh, worked with Peter Brook briefly when he was in town. And... Um, so, so yes, it was a very much a, a, a time of getting into my body, really. I felt that my, my education thus far had been prim principally about the mind, you know, the intellect. And I felt that my body needed a, uh, some education as well. So that's what I got there from, from, from in, in California. Then the Mayans, and then later I, I traveled across the Pacific. Just, and, just before going yeah. there, sorry, just I yeah. want to uh, okay. dive into the, the Mayan culture a little bit. Was there anything about the... Um, because I, I know I've, when I read a little bit about you, you were also fascinated by sort of the, the the ancient knowledge that's embedded within the culture as well of the mines. I know you because you're fascinated by sort of secret sites and things like that. Mm, mm. Was there an aspect of that that interested you? Because the mines have, have been always something that uh, culture within themselves has been something that's always fascinated me. Mm. Was there anything about that element of things that um, information mm. that you really um, found, found out? Well. Uh, there is the classical Mayan civilization built these pyramids and, and temples in in uh, the Chiapas and the Yucatan, which which are still you know quite extraordinary places. Yeah. Um, but that I think that came to an end. Was it seven hundred eighty or nine hundred eighty or something like that? I can't remember exactly the dates. But so the people who live there now are not you know they they carry on that culture, but it's not the the sort of the high civilization, as it were, that lived at that time. And of course, they've also been very much affected by the impact of, of being taken over by the Spanish, you know. Um, and there, you go into some of the little Indian villages, and there'll be this huge church in the middle of the village, like a hundred times bigger than any other building in the, in the village, you know, and that's where people will gather. And they have these, they have these um, f fiestas or these saints' days that they they do regularly, and um, and part of it will be in the church. And um, but it's not quite like the church as we know it in Europe. You know, um, for a start, you stand outside and they'll be handing these little glasses of pochil, I think it's called, which is a which is a very strong liquor. Um, and then you go into the church, and um, there's, it's filled with this copal incense, which is very beautiful smell. And what they do is they 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 they, they have these statues of saints all the way around the church, and they they which which are draped in garments, and they take off the garments and they purify them, they ritually cleanse them, and they clothe them again. And and meanwhile, there are people playing these guitars, which are very sort of if you like, primitive guitars in the sense they're made of plywood and just sort of steel wire. But somehow they managed to get this really ethereal sound out of it. So you've got the incense, you've got the, 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 um, 
this, this sound. You've got this, and then of course there'll be people making prayers and sitting around, and and the whole place is full, and it, it's just, and plus the effect of the strong alcohol. So, you know, that's the kind of place where you know that was the sort of I could, I, I suppose, what I was looking for in a way was what you know, different kinds of religious experience really, and this was this was one of them. So those those fiestas seemed to be an important time when people kind of were able to set aside their daily grind, if you like, and commune with the gods essentially, and that's what they were doing. Do you think? Do you think it's important? Because we, if we look at culture now, in a sense, we don't really we don't really provide that opportunity. Really, I mean, I know within your own practice, you can provide the opportunity, but as a culture in general, we don't sort of set aside that time just to sort of. I don't know, just maybe time for the self, maybe time mm. just to sort of sit with yourself or it doesn't have to be praying, it can just be just a, a, a time in the day where you can you can step aside from everything that's going on around you and just mm. enjoy, the, enjoy be in the moment, basically. Mm. Well, I suppose most religions, perhaps all religions, have um, uh, forms where people do have time to reflect on... Um, you know the bigger picture if you like um obviously in christianity once a week sunday people go to church they pray they try to think kind of holy thoughts and so on um and in buddhism you know there'll be times when you meditate and so on so you know that's that is there uh, in those religions but today most people have have have, have um lapsed if you like you know they're, they're not there's not a there's not a, there's only a small proportion of the population in britain anyway who 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 still goes to church for example um and you know instead we are uh, uh, consumed if you like by consumerism we 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 um you know we we um fill our time either with you know watching things on netflix or or uh, you know watching sporting events on TV or whatever, you know, we, we, we don't have the same um, uh, avenues to s uh, spiritual connection that perhaps we might have had when, when the religion was, was, um, was, was dominant. So what's happening, I think, however, is that, you know, that the religion is being eclipsed, the, 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 the so-called religions, but there is a revival of interest in spirituality, which um, is... It, it, you know, well, it's different, isn't it? it? It's still got lots of the same elements, but it's a bit more perhaps eclectic. It's a bit more, you know, there's a bit more f flexibility in, in what you choose to, to do and how you choose to follow it. You can create your own uh, forms of spirituality. So hence the in, in interest in yoga and meditation, mindfulness, and um, and indeed psychedelics, as, as this conference is all about. So... Um, I think we're going through a period of tran transition when, 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 or transformation even, when the old ways are falling uh, away and new ways are arising. And so that's what I think is going on. Yeah, I love that. I'll, I'll cut you off before, but the, what was the next part of the journey that you said you went across to the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I went from... Uh, Guatemala um, back to California and then across and spent some time in Hawaii <coughs> and um, and then Samoa, uh, Fiji and back to Australia where, where I was born and um, 
I remember I said at the beginning that I was open to divine revelation to see what it might mean for me, you know. So uh, actually when I was down in, in southern Mexico on the second occasion, I had quite a a serious sort of slide into the depths of despair almost. I had what might be called a dark night of the soul where I felt... Like, like an eagle death sort of thing. Oh. Well, I just felt very... Um, um, I felt like I was wasting my life. I was I'd lost hope. I was kind of throwing myself away. I was useless. I was, you know, I just felt very negative about myself. Mm. But um, the journey I made from there to Hawaii was was one of of of, of um, emergence, really, and. Um, it, 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 it went through various stages, of course. I mean, one one of the important um, realizations was the, import, the importance of uh, loving myself. You know, and in fact, my motto for a while became: each day I'm learning, learning new ways to love. And it wasn't about a person who I was in love with. It was about anyone who came across my path. You know, anyone who I encountered, having a loving connection with them seemed important was important and indeed but it was only after I was able to love myself that I could really love someone else so that was an important step on that journey um, and then that followed um, uh, that was followed by uh, a time on Oahu where I, I had a kind of I suppose, I don't know, you call it a cosmic consciousness awakening or something like that, where I was looking at the sun setting and I had a sense of the 3D kind of space between me and the sun. And then I was thinking about all the other planets that are out there, Jupiter and Saturn and, and how amazing they are. But at the same time, they're nothing like as amazing as the Earth. And then I began to realize that, you know, you, 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 you stretch out beyond the solar system out into the galaxy and then into the other galaxies. And we don't know if there's any other life out there. You know, one would think that the odds are there must be, but we still don't know. And it may be that there isn't. It may be that this Earth is the Earth of the universe, you know. And I began to have that feeling that, that all of the time... Of since the Big Bang and all of the space of the universe has somehow been kind of focused as if like a giant magnifying glass on this earth and that here on earth life had ignited and then it had evolved you know the conditions of the evolution of life are very precise and particular and, and, and you know would not happen uh, easily and uh, and then led eventually to the coming of humanity and to the, and to the origin the birth of consciousness and so, and I realized that I was a living human being and that, you know, so I was actually the result of all this immense time and space that somehow had been focused on earth, brought about their life, and I was a living human being. And what an immense privilege that was. And, um, and so after that, you know, I could never feel as low again because, you know, I just realized what a gift it was to be a human being. Not, you know, at one point I was thinking, yeah, but, you know, there have been so many better people than me, you know, like Einstein and Shakespeare, and I'm nothing compared to that. And then I realized, well, yes, but they're dead. I'm alive. I can do something now. So 
I think it was at that time that I felt that I somehow had what the equivalent of a divine revelation, and then, as a result of that, felt it was my task to put my shoulder to the wheel of evolution and see what I could do to make things roll on in a positive way. I mean, we'll definitely go there now. I mean, so how did you, sort of that revelation that you had there, how did you, how did you sort of transition that in, from, um, in the future of your life? Well, uh, you know, that was when I was 26 or something, you know, and, and uh, from there I went on to Australia and I ended up working in Aboriginal communities in the centre for three or four years uh, as, a, as a community artist or a bush artist. And um, that involved going out into remote Aboriginal communities, putting on shows, working with the kids, uh, doing music, art and drama, and also uh, later, latterly working with the Aboriginal people, the, el- the men and women, providing them with opportunities to paint and recording their songs and stories. And so I was very privileged to, to, to have that opportunity because most white fellows that go into Aboriginal communities are either... Um, government officials who are trying to control things or their missionaries who are trying to convert people or their anthropologists who are trying to extract information but we were just going as 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 kind of entertainers i suppose or educators may be but in a in a very kind of creative artistic way um we were an arts team after all in any sorry to jump in in any ways did you sort of try and use your entertainment to sort of bridge any gaps between um cultural normality or even trying to ingest deeper lessons I'll just I'll, I'll give a bit of context what I mean is that I came across this lady a while ago who was a magician and she was um, visiting all these different cultures around the world and what she was trying to do is, is within these sort of some of these um, cultures that she was coming across there was a lot of sort of um, masculine energy in terms of sort of disrespecting the, fe- the feminine and sort of disrespecting mm. ladies within the community so with the younger children she tried to she played this game with them and she said every single time like before she she did a certain magic trick for the magic trick to happen she got the sort of the younger generation the community to do a mantra and say always respect females always respect Mm. females Mm. and she was trying to sort of do sort of some sort of subconscious thing Mm. just Mm. to try and sort of infiltrate the minds of these people Mm. uh, to try and be more mindful of how the um treat other other human beings especially Mm. females did you ever have a instance where you maybe you infiltrated your sort of um not infiltrated is not the right word but sort of just integrated what the your sort of um your creativity and art art to sort of maybe affect something within in the people Mm. well um what we were doing was to um, provide as I say, entertainment, but in a in a in an educational sort of way, because you see, in the Aboriginal communities, they they st- they have their own arts. I mean, they're more in a ritual context very often, but they have their own arts. So, what were we doing, bringing our forms in? Well, not only do they have their own arts, but they were also exposed to Western forms as well so you know they would go and see john wayne or kung fu movies in the cinema or 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 they would um be listening to country and western or gospel music or reggae or things like that you know so um 
but none of that, none of the films were about their experience. So the shows that we put together were were, were really about the meeting. Between, we didn't, we never, t- we never, for example, had a, had a a sacred, a totemic animal in any of our shows, like a kangaroo or an emu. We wouldn't touch on that because we never could know if whether we might somehow offend somebody. So so it was all about the the meeting ground between black and white Australia, if you like. And um, and using those forms, but to make songs that um, expressed something about their experience, so they could relate to it. And that was the important thing: finding ways that they could relate to it. And my, my, the, the guy that I worked with, Bill Davis, had written some great songs. Um, one of the classics was was called "Motor Car Wiru," and and it's all about the motor car, you know. Um, because they do have cars out there, but you know, often, in fact, usually they're they're bangers, you know, and they're yeah. clapped out, and they've got no lights and no steering's dodgy, and all the rest of it. Um, windscreen wipers don't work, so it was all about that, you know, how the car, you know, it's a terrible car, but it's still a great car, you know, that was the sort of theme of the of the the song. So, um, we 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 tried to make a bridge, I think, between. Uh, you know the non-Aboriginal white Australian culture and and uh, um, the the Aboriginal culture in a way that 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 um, celebrated, I suppose, their identity as far as we could as as outsiders. Yeah, I like that. I mean, so so like I said again before about the sort of this um, this sort of interesting moment that occurred in your life where you had this sort of. This moment, which really obviously changed the whole trajectory of your life, did that? I mean, did you from that period? Did you go and sort of did you visit any other places with that knowledge you had, or was it this case of because obviously I know the things that you're interacting with now, you've you've sort of started this sort of self-sustainable project. Is that what mm. is that would you call mm. it? That a self-sustainable project? Well, I mean, basically, you know, yes, the the, re- the so-called divine revelation was an important part, but actually, the work in Aboriginal communities was very significant too. Because at the end of it, I found myself thinking, well, what is it that we have to learn from them? And in a, in, in the end, it sort of boiled down to three things. One was um, about how they see the land as sacred; they see the land as their mother. And so, you know, I became interested in in trying to uh, find a way of developing that idea in our own my own cultural context so that was the first thing sacred land and then the second thing was um as i reflected on it afterwards really was it was about rites of passage or initiation because it seemed to me that um that there's a process that they put their young people through which which is quite challenging but it, it 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 opens up the adult world to them in such a way that by the end of it they know who they are where they come from what their purpose is and what their responsibilities are to the land and to the community and it felt to me that the absence of rites of passage in 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 uh, our society was was crippling our people that that somehow you know we 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 don't do it very well and uh, as a result of that you know we've we've got people in uh, positions of power who are still effectively boys and girls perhaps you know so that became a second thing the the rites of passage and then the third thing 
was about the dreaming. I came across a book just before I left Australia called White Man Got No Dreaming. It was a collection of anthropological essays. And the title was a quote from an Aboriginal man who had observed that white Australians had no spiritual connection to the land. They, they, they'd left the land of their ancestors. They didn't know the stories of the place. And that, to me, it seemed as what the essence of the dreaming was. It was about land, it was about ancestors, it was about story, and it was about spirit. And, and so, you know, it occurred, it, the question then came to me, well, if there was a white man's dreaming, what would it be? So those were the those were the three sort of things that I, I had in my mind when I came back from Australia, and I, it, it, it had taken me ten years. I'd had the, my my if you like divine revelation, mm. and eventually, after another four years living in London, I found myself um, able to buy uh, some land in North Wales uh, in Snowdonia, just near the foot of of Snowdon, really. Um, and so, in the following thirty odd years. I've been um, I've been developing that, and and the place Kaimabon has become, if you like, the sacred site that I've been in, in uh, looking into and sort of looking for, if you like. Um, not that it is; it's not really of any particular religious denomination, although. Uh, if anything, it's probably connected to the Druids more than anything else. In fact, the chief bard of the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids, has, has, has described it as the most Druid-like place he knows anywhere in the world, and he's been around. So, you know, I guess that's what I've found myself exploring, is the, is the, uh, is the early culture of these islands pre-Roman so looking back to what you know before the shadow of the empire fell across these lands what were people doing here then what was going on 100 BC and you know when the Druids were in their heyday and when and we still have stories that have 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 roots in in that time so so that's been the, the exploring the stories has been part of my um uh, exploration of the the dreaming. What might the white man's dreaming be, or perhaps better like, described as the dreaming of Britain? And that's that's really what I've been what I've been largely doing over the last sort of thirty years is is is, is developing those three lessons from Aboriginal Australia: the sacred land, which became Kaimabon. Uh, the white man's dreaming, which has been my exploration of the stories, the ancient stories of these islands, and then the rites of passage, which I've also been involved with doing work on, uh, you know, for for for, for young um, boys, uh, adolescents, youth, you know, becoming men. Could you actually speak more about on the rites of the passage? Because I think that's a, I would love to know your uh, deeper insight into that. Because I think it's a powerful thing, like the things, type of things that you've been trying to. Uh, do in that area yeah I mean <coughs> it's um, in fact as of the three things it's the one thing I've I've had to sort of drop more recently just because it's quite difficult to get all the permissions that you need to do the work with the young people but we for quite a long time I was working with with men actually with with um, with adult men uh, often they would be in their midlife so it's sort of midlife crisis almost I, I remember uh, uh, Rob, uh, Bob, uh, Bob Geldof wrote an autobiography called Is This It and I thought that was quite a good question or a good title because it was uh, you know here he was in the middle of his life and 
and it's like well is this it i mean isn't this you know what is it is there something more that, that i'm missing you know and i think that a lot of men feel that in the middle of, in in their midlife so what we would do is we would have men come together and um and during the course of a five day period they would tune into what it was that they were on the kind of uh, the 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 threshold of what is it what was the change in their life that they wanted and needed to make and it could be a whole range of things from dealing with birth trauma to facing death and everything in between relationships obviously came into it relationships with parents and and and, and work and all all sorts of things and so over a period of a couple of days by uh, talking within a group, by talking in pairs, by going and spending time in nature, by doing uh, some movement and, and, and voice and breath work, they would come to f clarify that, that question, that what is it that I'm on the cusp of right now? What is it I'm the, on the threshold of changing in my life? And then in the middle of it, there'd be a t sort of transition. We sometimes would do a sweat lodge as a sort of purification. And then in the last couple of days, each when a person was ready, felt ready, and usually that's they can sense the, the sort of butterflies in the stomach kind of thing, saying, "Yes, okay, my, this is my time." That person would say there um, as succinctly as they could what they thought their issue was, and then they would leave the group, and the rest of the group, in their absence, would design a ritual for them. Sometimes it took an hour or more just to come it, come up with it, but when we would draw from ritual practices from from all over the world and all time you know including s sacred objects and actions i mean sometimes it was a simple thing like washing someone's feet you know having someone's feet or lifting them up and carry them other times it was more challenging you know like you have to chop a rope to free yourself symbolically from something so it's all about using symbols and somehow creating a ritual that in which you kind of channel this this uh this 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 power really and and uh each person would get their own tailor-made ritual as a result of that uh it was it was quite demanding work um and took quite a bit of uh skill in order to find the right thing but it, uh, it, you know and the person you know would would not know what they were going to get because they were somewhere else waiting for all of this so they couldn't rehearse their rep responses they had to be in the moment they had to be uh, true to themselves in that moment so um and i think nearly everybody who went through those rites of passage would have would have got uh, or did get something very uh, profound out of it yeah, I mean, it's powerful. I want to touch on that because it's very relatable, and I love you talking about that because it's. It was. I think it was. It was. Was he, I think it was yesterday. I mean, all this this weekend's been sort of blending into one, hmm. but I'm sure it was yesterday. I was. I went for a sort of. <coughs> I've been doing podcasts all day, and I decided to go off on sort of just a walk down to the the water to sort of clear my mind and sort of try and have a little bit of integration, whatever time I had to integrate sort of all these great conversations and stuff. And I had this same sort of profound thing because I would say I'm in a, I'm in a period in my life where I'm probably doing them having having them same questions of what you've just described on them sort of young men have as well, and I remember just sort of standing beside and looking at the the sun was setting in London, and I was looking over and I was like this little voice inside on my shoulder was coming up and it, it was like saying to us, what are you searching for? Like what what is it that you're searching for? Mm. And I just I couldn't find the answer. I still cast I, I, I feel like I just still couldn't find it and I was trying to go through all the things. Is it freedom? 
Is it love? Is it compassion? Is it connection? Mm. And it was just, it was still permeating there. Do you, I mean, have you ever, do you have any sort of practice, practices, um, sort of maybe internal process, processes that you did with the, you do, you did when you do these sort of rituals mm. to, to really try and get to the grasp of, of how you really connect with what you truly want in life? Well, it's great that you've, those questions have come to your mind because that's those the, the, those are the the big questions if you like mm-hmm. that you want to find the answers to in your life and 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 our educational system doesn't uh, prepare us for that in any way it sort of distracts us from those big questions about what is my purpose and you know a responsibility in, in my life you know what is my path you know it doesn't really direct us towards that um so I think for me, one of the uh, things, a sort of a starting point, really, for almost everything, is 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 to remind myself to feel gratitude, gratitude for the gift of life that I have. Um, as I was saying earlier, realizing how extraordinary it is it is to be a living human being alive at this moment on the planet. Um, it's like I, I did a collection of songs a few years ago called "Rare and Precious Earth," you know, and that's that's the that really, in a way, sums up the the sort of the feeling I have how of how how a, what a gift it is to be alive on the earth. But it might take a while to realize that to really fully feel it inside. You know, it's not something that you can read in a in a book and and get. You have to experience it. You have to know it somehow internally. You like, know. Sorry, German as well. I'll let, you, I'll let you come back in, but it, it feels in a way sometimes like because I'm also aware of the it's sort of like the cycles within inside your own mind it sort of it comes it goes it's you up and you down it's do you, you understand what i mean mm. it's sort of like a i have learned to sort of embrace the questions don't let the questions run over you mm. but just when they come up try and witness them and mm. and sit with them and see mm. and see where it takes you does that make mm. sense yeah i mean i'm a i'm a i'm the way i've lived my life is is i've followed my my hunches and i'm a great believer in 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 that um and you don't necessarily know quite why you're doing something uh, but you just do it anyway and then the why kind of comes to you later so um you know when i when i moved to what is now kaimabon in north wales 37 years ago 33 years ago i um you know, I had a hunch that it would be a good place for people to come. And I had a feeling that, you know, something would happen there, but I, w- I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, but I, you know, I, I just kind of believed in it somehow. And, uh, and, and, and then I started to do something. The very first building, in fact, was a, was a thatched roundhouse, an Iron Age roundhouse, stone wall, which took f- three years to build, one week a year. And then the thatched roof and somehow when that was completed something kind of opened up the pe- people still wanted to be there they could see something unusual was happening around how thatch roundhouse there's not many of them i mean then there weren't many of them a few more now but it, and but to be able to sit inside under a roof around a fire and to talk and chat and tell stories and sing and you know that's that's a very kind of ancient thing to do it's and you know our ancestors lived in in round houses like this for thousands of years before the romans came so it's a very it feels like it's a way of connecting with a very old part of yourself and um 
and I think people picked on picked up on that and they loved it and they wanted to come and be there and then f- after that because people wanted to come over then we had to build facilities we had to have a barn with a you know kitchen a meeting room we needed toilets and showers and then we needed you know initially we had tents we had just about every kind of tent you can have we tried there and then one by one we replaced the tents with more permanent buildings using in all cases what what are referred to as natural materials so straw bales uh, logs stone thatch cob uh, more latterly hempcrete and so on so we've tried all these things and uh, if if i knew then I mean, I couldn't have possibly visualized what's there now, then. And then perhaps if I had, it would have been too daunting. I couldn't have, you know, I, I thought, oh, that's too much work. I can't possibly do all that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're only, it's only, uh, you, the, 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 the vision that you're working towards is, is only sort of revealed step by step because you can't see it all in one go, yeah, you know. Like and that. if you do, it's like, it's, it can be too much. So you just, you're just given enough for you to, to keep going, you know. And now, I mean, um, I'm, I, you know, we've, we've, I'm not saying it's complete because there's always more work to do, but it feels somehow the, the, the place, uh, the Kai Mabon, has, has kind of reached a certain sort of maturity, if you like. It's a, it's a ripe fruit, you know. And uh, the great thing is that although people say this is unique, it is a unique place, and, and it is because of the location and because of the, the creative sort of approach that I brought to it but there are other people doing similar things all over the country like you were talking about Lamas earlier and, and and in Wales especially I think it's true in England too but you know in Wales um, the, perhaps the perhaps the, the landscape the geography the history whatever it is it lends itself more to these sort of things there are lots of really I think it's the legalities as well it's the legalities of things uh, legislation and yeah things, yeah well the two the one planet living and so on has, has been established in Wales for a while now but you know there are some really good people and they've been now they've been doing them for 5 10 15 in my case 30 years so there's a sort of sense of things are, are kind of rooted they're established they're 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 um you know we've made something that we still don't really kind of connect as a as a as a network of of uh, of little beacons of light in a very deliberate conscious way but we are there, there is a sense of something really uh, significant happening in in, in 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 well, I could say the world right now because these things are going on all over the place. People who want to live uh, close to nature, they want to live in a sustainable way. They want to be creative and and grow their own food and uh, have a sort of convivial sense of community with each other. And that's what we have there, and that's what these other places are doing as well. So they might be small b- beer in, in, in the bigger picture of, of, of um, what's going on in Britain, for example, but I think they're significant. There's a, there's a kind of even 1% of the population doing this makes a difference. You know, I mean, I remember thinking about this before, and in Australia, the, popula- the Aboriginal population was only 1% of the total uh, that may have changed slightly since, but I always felt that actually that one percent was really key in terms of the Australian identity. You know, I mean, of course, Aboriginal imagery has been, in a sense, it's been stolen from them. But you know, you see boomerangs and kangaroos and on 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 branding for Australia. You know, 
And uh, so that 1% made the big difference. And I remember at the same time, at the, uh, and it's changed now, of course, but I think 1% of the population was voting green back then, you know. Uh, now it's bigger than that. And I heard yesterday Gail Bradbrook saying that it's 3.4%. If you get 3.4% of the population doing active civil disobedience, for example, then that can change everything. I love that. Have you... I mean, I'm trying to think where to go because there's so many different places. One of the one of the things I actually wanted to ask you is when you were speaking before about the roundhouse aspect. It's something that it's something that I've um, I've questioned within myself as well as is, is why is because I've experienced the sense of roundhouses and there's some there's something there. Mm. It's an unexplainable feeling, but there's a I can't remember the title of the book, but there's a guy who wrote it. I think it was a book called Square Boxes or something or Square Houses or something. But basically, it was a psychological um, sort of exploration in a in a sort of um, architecture mm. in terms of the way that certain buildings are structured and the way that street signs are, because he was like basically trying to make the argument that the the Monday world is a, a very squ- is a very square orientated mm. um, mm. perception of reality, mm. whereas as ancient cultures in the past had these sort of um, it was more of like a sort of a circular environment. Mm. Have you ever? Co- that well, before. yeah, I, I think that the the it's, it's more organic, if you like. Um, I mean, I, I sort of attribute it to some degree to the Romans because before the Romans came, everybody did pretty much live in round houses. Maybe they were more they were easier to build in some ways in those days. But um, and then the Romans came along and they straightened everything up. You know, yeah. straight roads, square corners in houses, and so on. And and that's how it's been ever since. I mean, in some ways, it's easier to build like that too. Um, but I, I do think that the you know mo- many of the buildings we have are round or roundish. You know, there's a kidney-shaped building there. You know, there's all sorts of different shapes, and that's what's going on in these other places that uh, you know Velenichaf and Lamas and others, where they're building in a in more more creative way, really, but also a more organic way. So I, I I think that people like that. They respond to it. Their spirit sort of rises when they're in such a place. So. Um, um, I mean, obviously we you know, we're in a little yeah box cube now. right now, but you know that's uh, so you know it would have been different if we had been sitting in the roundhouse by the fire having a conversation there. You know, probably it might have been quite different. But um, it's, it's funny because um, I heard it once as a there was an old um, Ian, um, I'm not sure if you come across this sort of folk tale if you want to call it that, but there was some sort of um, ancient wisdom from the Native Americans, and they also described the reasoning to why they had the the round houses is because they said that. The word that they used was that if you have the said spirits, um, the, yeah, the word they used was spirits accumulated in corners of rooms, mm. and where it's a round environment, spirits yeah. circumnavigate and they yeah. can't get stuck in the corners. I thought, well, I was yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday who was talking about a churchyard where they'd done the corners rounded because otherwise the devil can hide in corners. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I was going to see. I think we. I just want to check. Have we got time? I think we might be running out of time. I need to check. We've gone yeah. over, haven't we? Yeah, we've gone over a little bit. But we'll just, I think maybe that's a, um, but maybe just we'll leave it there. That's a, that's okay. A cool, yeah. That's okay. A cool, well, people can find that elsewhere. Anyway. Mindful of the time, anyway. Yeah. Okay. But honestly, though, thank you so much. Um, such a fascinating journey, by the way. <laughs> um, so many um, integrative lessons, and I loved how you, when you were talking about uh, the 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 sort of the the deep integrative lessons that you were you were sort of attaining as this journey unfolded, mm. and I just thought it was a powerful podcast. Thank you so mm. much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. All right, Thank great. You. Thanks for having me. That was me. cool. Thank yeah. you. Now, that was a cool conversation. I really loved chatting to Eric. And as I mentioned, 
I didn't really know much about them before the podcast. And as the conversation unfolded, we really went to some very interesting areas. I loved how we really went to the angle of talking about ritual in society and how ritual in society really is something that we neglect as a society. It is a big thing. It's something that I've thought about. So I'm glad we touched on that. And I thought that was an interest. He had a very interesting insight. Really went on an interesting journey and really found himself in my opinion. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast. There's many amazing conversations to come up in the near future. There's still about three or four, maybe five podcasts from my time at the Britain Convention. There's also a podcast coming up with a guy I did from my time at the Lamas community called Tao, and that's an awesome podcast. So there's some great conversations coming up in the near future. If you can, please find it in your heart and check out the Patreon page and support the podcast. It really is the best way to help me to keep doing what I'm doing. Also have a one-off donation option if you want to support the podcast through that. So anyway, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. There's some amazing conversations coming up in the future, as I mentioned. And just to play this conversation out, this is a song by an English artist. It really is cool. I come across it a couple of weeks ago. It's a it's a group called Poem, and the song is called She Drew the Gun. Listen to the words in this one. It is a powerful one. And the, the, the girl who sings this song definitely doesn't hold hold sort of hold nothing back she swears a bit and she definitely goes full attack full she goes out full attack surely but anyway uh, enjoy this song i know you'll love it peace out people can't believe what i'm reading when i open these sheets they got police getting busy cleaning up the streets because that's what we need now to make the place neat take the homeless man's rags no sleeping bags no place to sleep because we're far too civilized around here to see an unkempt human being a broken human being open up your eyes are you seeing what i'm seeing yeah miss place made to feel disgraced human being why it's not enough to just pretend that you don't see him you can't stand the sight so you gotta disappear and well i hope you feel more comfortable doing your sightseeing taking pictures buying fucking union jack magnets and key rings life give me something to believe in no lies just something to believe in i'm i the only one that's grieving these things that belong to you and me that they are thieving and how long until they build a wall and call it a private city they got walls made out of laws to exclude you and me and now they take away our right to fight those laws for free no legal aid no more justice only for the wealthy oh but they're trying to build a more healthy society so that everybody knows you don't get nothing for free no scrounges no living room lounges living off me Suggest you're seeing exactly what they want you to see A monster, a cancer, a threat to your liberty How about a scapegoat for their crimes A victim of the times Everything that you're not meant to be How about a badly prepared, scared human being How about a necessary cog in the economic machine Cause if there was no unemployment Tell me how would things be Do you still feel lucky to be working 40 hours a week We're like a, a cage bird and they got us by the beak Give us enough to eat, enough to sleep, enough to tweet But there's not enough space between the ground and our feet We're singing songs of freedom but we're not flying free So life, give me something to believe in No lies, just something to believe in I'm I 
the only one that's grieving These things that belong to you Neither they are thieving This whole world's got me hurting Got me feeling undeserving Got me questioning my worth In this sad system that we're serving Find no place in this twisted race for property Is making profit the sole aim of humanity Protect the banks, bring out the tanks If they disagree While we're at it, let's invest some more in military All our friends have shares So why shouldn't we? Markets are demanding that we give away for free Everything our grandparents fought for to some company It's called wealth creation yeah, It's more efficient, you see Sorry, I forgot the free market would set us free I forgot to only think about I, man, and me While brothers and sisters have nothing to eat Brothers and sisters at home and overseas So I can't lie down and I won't let it be While we are working for a market that doesn't work for me These things that they're thieving, the others and mine You know that they're stealing, but there's still time If you feel this way too These things that they're thieving, the yours and mine You know that they're stealing, but there's still time If you feel this way too